We are back. Let us uh, let us try and round out today's program by taking a look at some science issues. We usually have a giant pile of, of science and technology matters that uh, we sometimes get to and we sometimes don't. Let's see if we can make it a do on, uh, on today's show. Starting off with the following item, um, which came from Nature. Quicksand is less deadly than its depiction in the movies. <laughs> It's highly unlikely, according to new research, that a person could be completely swallowed up by quicksand. Duh! What prompted this was apparently researcher Daniel Bond of the University of Amsterdam uh, went to Iran and found himself stuck in a patch of quicksand. He wriggled his way out and brought a sample along to look at later. The recipe for quicksand, according to... uh, to Daniel Bond is a mixture of sand, salt, water, and clay that usually occurs near river estuaries. Now, my understanding of quicksand is that water under pressure basically separates the grains of sand, and so when you step on it, it's sort of this, uh, uh, in essence, a very dense liquid. And, and that's why, you know, the Gary Larson cartoons uh, notwithstanding, or, or representations in, in, in Tarzan movies, you don't step into quicksand and continue to sink until you slowly disappear and the top of your head goes underneath. A person is a lot less dense than the quicksand, and so you don't continue to sink indefinitely. You go into about the point where your buoyancy balances you off. Now, there are cases where floods hit rivers, turns into temporary quicksand, you sink down and the river recedes and you're stuck. And the, and the real danger with quicksand is that it takes about as much force to pull someone out as to, as to lift a car. So it's possible to get stuck uh, in like an estuary and then when the high tide comes in, then you drowned. What I don't understand is why someone can't go out and simulate a patch of quicksand or find some spot where, you know, an artesian water comes in and, and, and creates one and just do some experiments with this. All right, all you astute researchers out there, let's, uh, let's get off the dime here and see if we can do a little quicksand study with video. I think it would be very interesting to put that on the web. And if you've got any special insight into the matter of quicksand, uh, why don't you drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com, and we'll talk about this in future installments of this program. I'm going to return to a subject that we made passing mention of some weeks ago. Uh, The brains of some people are built to lie, which may have some implication for uh, those who seek a career in politics. (laughs) Psychologists at the University of Southern California screened 108 people. They classified them as either habitual liars or habitual truth-tellers. Now, that must have been the tough part of that uh, research project. But they used MRI scans of the subject's prefrontal cortexes, the area of the brain that controls moral behavior and strategizing. And they did find differences. Turned out that liars' brains had uh, more white matter that manages complex planning and that had a little bit less gray matter, the tissue that regulates impulse control. These are, these are broad, uh, broad generalizations. But nevertheless, there did appear to be some differences. The liars' brains appeared to be wired for deceit, combining a greater capacity for quick thinking with reduced ability to feel remorse. Lying is cognitively complex, Chief Researcher Adrian Rain told the Los Angeles Times. It's certainly more difficult than telling the truth. Some people have a biological advantage. And of course, is the immortal politician by Cream, in case anybody uh, missed the significance of uh, 
Mystic McMillan's uh, musical embellishment. Um, I did I, I did note that Jerry, uh, our friend Jerry, sent an email of this article <laughs> with the line, Now we know what Bush's brain really looks like. We kind of snag on the complex thought part of that, but uh, anyway. Well, you know, just back to that last item on quicksand. There's a scene in um, Lawrence of Arabia where Lawrence loses one of his companions to quicksand, but they're out in the dry desert, just dry desert sand. There is no quicksand without water. I thought that was just kind of, you know, detracted from the movie a little bit. What can I say? We're sticklers for detail sometimes. All right, let's go back to science and technology. Uh, apparently, CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, is what? A series of television shows, enormously popular. It's been noted that uh, forensic science's spell in the limelight has sent students flocking to forensics courses. But uh, while this interest is sexing up the image of scientists, it's also stopping police catching criminals and securing convictions. Jurors who watch CSI believe that those scenarios where forensic scientists are always right are what really happens said Peter Bull, a forensic sedimentologist at the University of Oxford. It means that in court, juries are not impressed with evidence presented in cautious scientific terms. All right, and here's a, an article that I, I just think is fascinating. We, we, uh, we like talking about physics sometimes on this show, and we like talking about astronomy, but we tend to steer clear of these discussions on string theory and dark matter and dark energy because, let's face it, uh, the host just doesn't understand it. <laughs> but I'm fascinated by this article, uh, which I'm taking out of The Economist. This is the uh, October 22nd issue about cosmology, noting that although people have proposed that we need dark matter to explain the orbits of uh, stars around galaxies and they, there appears to be missing, uh, missing matter, a, a physicist took a look at this in terms of using Newtonian physics versus Einsteinian physics and decided that if you don't do the round-off method of, um, of Newton, but instead uh, try and apply Einstein's laws to uh, how things should work, that this discrepancy you see in orbits disappear. And it appears they were able to reproduce the observed speeds at stars orbiting galaxies without requiring the galaxy to contain dark matter. Indeed, the distribution of mass through the galaxy roughly followed the distribution of visible matter with no need for exotic new particles or exotic new physics. Interesting stuff. I, I hope that someone out there listening has, uh, is familiar with this paper, a controversial paper on this topic, which apparently appeared on ARX, large XIV, an online collection of physics papers. Fred Cooperstock and Stephen Chu of the University of Victoria in Canada have, uh, have, have recalculated this, and, and we're going to return to this uh, topic at some point in the future. Pretty interesting stuff. From the macroscopic world to the microscopic, um, it's been noted um, that in Hong Kong, they overused some powerful antibiotics during the SARS outbreak in 2003 and in, a, in an effort to shorten hospital stays while this health system was overburdened. And as a result say microbiologists at the University of Hong Kong, hospitals are now faced with an upsurge in antibiotic-resistant bacteria with infections having to be treated with surgery or by experimental drugs. This is uh, of concern, particularly in the outbreak of avian flu, wherein uh, the use of um, antibiotics and antivirals could induce more um, resistance than would be sensible. 
confirming some of this concern, a study done uh, in, on antibiotic resistance prevention and control in, uh, in Europe of 300 European hospitals found that those using the most antibiotics had the highest levels of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Hospitals with the tightest infection control, such as isolating patients with MRSA, had the lowest levels. And a fascinating bit of technology uh, may offer a partial solution to some of the the problems related to methicillin-resistant staph. They've developed an electronic nose that sniffs out infections, um, that basically picks up the volatile organic compounds that staph aureus strains excrete. And by using this electronic nose, they can sniff out the dangerous bacteria, basically by smell print. And uh, this interesting development, and we're going to see a lot in the future regarding uh, your olfactory sense. There's going to be a lot of sniffers and things that are going to electronically be able to tell the chemical signatures of of various, uh, various things. Apparently, a surgeon at the hospital came up with this idea of sniffing out superbugs when he was in the operating theater, operating on a neck abscess on different patients, and noticed that the infections had a slightly different smell. He wondered if a machine could work out uh, what the bacterial infections were from the smell alone, and it turns out that, that uh, to some degree, yes, you can. I'm not sure how, how they did this exactly, but they trained this uh, device to pick up the smell print of, uh, of MRSA and uh, then tested it, the swabs of 150 patients who they knew the status of from, from actual cultures, and uh, this device correctly detected 96% of those who had Staph aureus infections. Very promising technology here. And speaking of the medical field, from the duh file, we have an article that was in, uh, in, in WebMD uh, in September, noted that grueling hours and frequent overnight work shifts may be as rough on new doctors as a few cocktails, according to this researcher's uh, report in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They tested people who had a light call schedule, 44-hour work week, and after a heavy call schedule, a 90-hour work week, and then they compared them to people who had done uh, basically a a happy hour where they had a few drinks. And it turned out, not surprisingly, that the test performances of 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 the residents were as bad after a heavy work schedule as it was after having the shorter shift plus alcohol. I love the JAMA editorial. This is without doubt a notable finding, writes editorialist Drew Dawson, PhD, and colleagues, but they don't support doing away with long hours for new doctors. In some scenarios, limiting work hours may increase risk to patients and physicians, writes Dawson, who works at the University of South Australia Center for Sleep Research. For example, restricting working hours may lead to restricted access to healthcare practitioners through a reduction in the labor supply. (laughs) Yes, great justification. Why, if we have to hire more people which we don't want to do, and spend more money, which we don't want to do, whether we won't have as many people, which could negatively impact your health care. Which, folks, is one of the main reasons why this, this barbarity perpetuates itself. It's all about the bottom line. And on a happier note, uh, it appears that a, a, an experiment uh, begun with uh, supplementation of vitamins in this country, uh, to wit, adding folic acid to food, has actually cut the rate of spina bifida and anencephaly birth defects by more than a third since 1998 when folic acid was added to the nation's enriched flours, rice, and pastas, according to a study recently released in the Journal of Pediatrics. 
It was demonstrated back in the 90s that uh, the risk of birth defects could be significantly reduced by giving expectant mothers a synthetic version of folic acid. So uh, this is a case where just simple vitamin uh, supplementation appears to be paying some big dividends. There's been some studies of late also showing that that um, folic acid may be good for uh, preserving mental sharpness later on in life. Uh, I think on the face of it, it certainly falls in the uh, can't hurt, might help category. And in a rather curious study done on preschoolers, uh, which were offered a chance to shop for a Barbie doll's social evening, the children were more likely to choose cigarettes if their parents smoked and wine or beer if their parents drank. The study appeared in the September issue of Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, and it certainly suggests that uh, prevention efforts for things like booze and cigarettes uh, might need to target even younger children. And if you want to stay mentally sharp uh, later in life, and, and, and who doesn't, another thing you may want to consider is that eating fish appears to slow the annual decline in thinking. In fact, eating fish at least once a week is evidently good for the brain. Previous studies uh, had shown that uh, people who ate fish lowered the risk of Alzheimer's disease and stroke, but this study done in Chicago uh, by epidemiologists at Rush University Medical Center showed that those who ate two fish meals a week showed a 13% slower annual decline. So I guess fish really is brain food. My grandma used to call it brain food, and I guess grandma was right. And in a very curious study, which was reported uh, out of Orlando, Florida, at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncologists a couple of months ago, Swiss researchers came up with a vaccine against nicotine that apparently in some cases proved to be effective in helping people to quit smoking. At least the subgroup among people that received the vaccine who got a high antibody response um, it turns out that 57% of them were able to quit smoking compared to just uh, 32% of people in, uh, in groups that had lower antibody titers. It's uh, not sure what to make of this, but isn't that an interesting possibility? You get a shot and it helps you beat the, uh, the nicotine habit. I, I think that uh, we are just about out of time, so uh, let us sign off. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We would like to thank our special guest, Joe Garden of The Onion, and think that you might want to consider getting a copy of that latest uh, volume of Hilarity. We'll uh, see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock.